Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire from WFIU, WTIU's News Bureau. We can, uh, we have uh, four guests who are going to be joining us today as we talk about issues facing K-12 education in Indiana and legislation that's going through the state house. Our four guests are Phil Harris, the Indiana Coalition for Public education, and he's also the Indiana, Indiana's Choice producer. Paul Farmer is a teacher with the Bloomington, with Bloomington High School North and the uh, school corporations, um, the head of the, the school corporation um, education association. Ashlyn Nelson is with the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. She's an economist, and Alexander Cuenco is uh, Indiana University School of Education Associate Professor. Dr. Cuenca, thank you for being here. Thank you, the rest of you, for being here. I want to start with you, though, to talk about this controversial uh, House bill, the controversial legislation that's going um, through the General Assembly right now. There are about two weeks to go in the session, so something's going to give soon. Could you sort of frame the debate, what the debate has been about with House Bill 1134? Sure. And uh, thank you for, uh, for having us on uh, this afternoon. Um, so HB 1134 is a bill that's similar to many others across the country that are seeking to ban the teaching of so-called divisive concepts, um, uh, which has come from this belief that critical race theory is kind of taking over public education. Um, in Indiana, the law has kind of stayed away from their critical race theory label and just decided to kind of spell out a bunch of things that we aren't allowing teachers to talk about in the classroom. Uh, in particular, that any race, sex, ethnicity, religion, color, or national origin is inherently superior or inferior, that no one is responsible for actions in the past based on those categories, and that we shouldn't treat people preferentially based on those categories. Um, it's important to establish that this proposed legislation is based on a manufactured crisis. There isn't a, a cabal of social studies teachers uh, indoctrinating impressionable youth with leftist propaganda. Um, education just doesn't work like that in the United States. We're a nation of 13,000 different locally controlled school districts. Uh, and so to kind of to make the argument that it's happening kind of broadly nationally um, is a little bit um, uh, phantasmical. Um, the the reason I, I think um, why you've had uh, every educational professional organization, uh, including those kind of here today, uh, but also national organizations like the National Council for Social Studies and the American Historians Association, um, kind of be appalled by this bill is because it strikes at the very core of what educators are supposed to be doing, which is getting students to think. Um, so, for example, the logic of the law that, um, you know, superior versus inferior um, history is, is the history of humanity. And humanity is kind of constantly operating on some kind of relative scale. So to teach history without recognizing that humans sometimes see things as inferior or superior, that's not a partisan lens. Republicans see things differently than Democrats. Democrats see things differently than Republicans. Uh, you know, to think about teaching the American Revolution, for example, uh, British loyalists believe that the British state was superior to an American nation and vice versa. Um, we see democracy as superior to Nazism or communism. Um, and so the, that 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 is the the idea of taking the uh, the heart of teaching away from educators based on some um, problem that doesn't exist. I think has been the the reaction that we've been seeing across the state uh, and also across the country. We did a show on critical race theory uh, a few weeks ago, and but I want to give you an opportunity to talk about you know what that actually is and how it is technically not 
being taught anywhere in uh, school corporations? Yeah, critical race theory is a, is a graduate level theory uh, around, it's a legal theory around why laws and why racism persists uh, in the United States. Um, and so it, it is a legal theory. It's a, it's, a, it's a theory that's kind of taught in graduate school, um, that we use it uh, as an academic lens to make sense of race and racism and the persistence of racism in the United States. But um, it is not in schools. Um, in fact, the irony of the law uh, is that, that um, indeed, um, the story of America in particular um, has been uh, pretty traditional and pretty um, straightforward pro-American, that there hasn't been any, that when we're talking about superiority, we're talking about the superiority uh, of the American nation. Um, So where we do have agreement, although it's difficult around 13,000 school districts to kind of get a sense of what's happening in all of them across the country, um, we do have agreement around kind of the way that textbooks are framed, for example. Uh, we know that uh, that Black people, that women, that LGBTQ populations have been effaced from the curriculum. Um, we know that the curriculum operates to kind of think about the greatness of the United States uh, for good reason, right? We want to replicate um, the ways in which we want our society to kind of see uh, ourselves. Um, but that's also built in some kind of blindness into our understandings. So if you think about even our own architecture of basic American history, the revolution, the Civil War, World War I, the Civil Rights Movement maybe is a notable exception, but those are all generally wars. And so the ways in which the, 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 the argument is that um, there is uh, this kind of anti-American um, push in social studies, when in reality, it's very pro-American. And what we do need is a little bit more inclusion in our curriculum to kind of help us understand kind of our pluralistic society. All right. That frames this uh, conversation very well, I think. Uh, Paul Farmer, teacher from Bloomington High School North, MCEA president. I kind of stumbled on your title there, Paul, and I apologize for that. How are, how are teachers feeling about um, this bill going through the legislature? How much time do we have? Um, <laughs> you know, you've been on this show before. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, and, and thank you uh, for, for uh, allowing me the opportunity to be on here today. The, the teachers, I mean, everything that has been said so far is absolutely true. Um, and the teachers feel like, like we're not, not respected. We don't, that we're trying to, like, like, like he had said, that we're trying to push students to a particular ideology and so on. And, and, and it is absolutely far from the truth. Um, we, the teachers feel like the state is out to get them, um, that uh, they're going to watch every single step that they do. Um, of course, there's been a lot of changes in the bill since it first came out of the House. Um, you know, they, for the most part, gutted it down to, although I, 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 my example that I use with it is the bill is a cancer and it started in your lungs and it spread to your lymph nodes and it's gone to your uh, pancreas and so on. Well, all they did in the Senate was they removed some lymph nodes. They removed um, out of the pancreas. But what they did was they left the cancer, which is all the, the racist and stuff like that material that's still in there. It's still there. Um, and, uh, but the teachers do feel that um, everything from disrespected to disliked to being um, pushing agendas. Um, and, it, and it really has um, being the association president now for seven years um, within the last well, this week alone, I've had four teachers and not beginning teachers. I'm talking teachers that have been doing this for eight years, nine years, 10 years, 15 years, 18 years, who have, who have called me and said, Paul, what are my options? I got to get out of teaching. Um, I, I can't do this anymore. And what's coming from the state? This, this is absurd. It's terrible for kids. I can't do this anymore. So that, that's where a lot of people are. Um, and I know there's a lot of young early career educators who are coming out of IU and uh, Ball State and everywhere around the, the country who are questioning, man, do I really want to get into this? <clears throat> Which is terrible. Um, they're wonderful people, wonderful teachers. They love kids. But yet we're putting this on them and, and forcing them to say, is this really worth it? Um, Which is horrible. We shouldn't do that to our students and, and our teachers. Let me move on to Phil Harris. Phil, you as Indiana Coalition for Public Education member, uh, you've been an observer of education for many years, written books on the topic. 
Um, so can you give me your overview of what's happening in, in the legislature right now with this particular bill, the elements of it that um, you agree with, disagree, disagree with? Just give me, give me your sense. Well, th- thanks, Bob. Uh, the previous two guests have really covered a lot of the details of this piece of legislation. I look at it as it's really a piece of legislation that's a red herring. And they're using the CRT topic to really continue to uh, discredit and denigrate the public education and the classroom teachers around our state. And, And I just see this as a further attempt, as an attempt to further the choice uh, and voucher legislation that has been really eroding public education over the last decade. Uh, <clears throat> so the, uh, the position of ICPE is that this is just another example of what the state is doing to undermine our public education system. We'll get back to uh, some of those topics. Uh, also, I want to bring Ashlyn uh, Nelson in uh, as an economist. When you look at at funding schools, Phil just brought up uh, you know the notion of of vouchers. Um, how is funding changing? And and I guess it's sort of a two part question. How is funding changing? And with this, you know, the debates that we're having now, should we? Is this the debate we should be having, or should we be having? a debate about how to uh, come out of the pandemic and, and make sure that we get all of our students educated. Um, well, if you are interested in some of the more recent legislative debate, um, House Bill 1072 was approved by the House um, on a 52 to 39 vote um, in late January. And that bill proposed to mandate that any local Uh, referendum dollars raised by local school corporations must be shared with charter schools. Um, So that's something that um, uh, was anticipated because of prior legislation that suggested that referendum dollars could be shared with charter schools, but that was not mandatory. Um, or Senate, the Senate recently declined to hear the bill. So it's, it's, I guess now dead, but, um, but that is something that is, is really being tossed around in terms of reallocating locally raised own source funds to charter schools. Um, part of the broader discussion around school funding relates to the allocation of what we refer to ESSER or elementary and secondary school emergency relief funds that were allocated by the federal government um, over three rounds of funding. And um, Collectively, um, Indiana's received uh, a ton of funding. The initial round in 2020 was about $215 million in CARES Act funding. Um, Charter schools received um, about 20 to $21 million of that funding. Uh, And then one thing that people haven't spoken about as much, but um, I encourage everyone to visit Steve Hennefeld's In School Matters blog for more details on this is the amount of money that private and charter schools in Indiana received above that under the Paycheck Protection Program. They were eligible for funding under that program um, because they are nonprofit organizations, even though public schools were not. And it's difficult to kind of estimate the exact amount that charter schools in Indiana received. Nationally, charter schools received between an estimated $925 million and $2.2 billion, and in Indiana, between $15 and $38 million, although that could potentially be a conservative estimate because a small business association only reports amounts received over $150,000, I believe. So um, they're getting a huge amount of funding. Um, the idea was that, you know, they applied for PPP paycheck protection program funding in order to keep their schools operational during the pandemic. Um, in addition to receiving the funding that school that regular public schools received, and so um, this has been, you know, charter schools have been accused of double dipping and getting more funding, more than their fair share of funding during in pandemic relief. Um, but the counter argument by charter schools is that they don't receive the same amount um, of money in terms of facilities financing that traditional public schools do. And so that's why uh, they were justified in taking those PPP funds. 
Ashlyn, I'm curious, Indiana is always, it seems like one of the first when it comes to expanding charter schools and funding for charter schools, but have other states tried this sort of funding mechanism with charter schools where they would, a public school would have to split their referendum dollars with a charter? I am, I am not quite sure about that specific um, referendum splitting. I know Texas was sort of um, uh, the first state in the country I think this was prior to 2010 or right around 2010, um, where the state of Texas Mm -hmm. allowed for charter schools to finance their facilities using local bonds. And so they were able to access low interest rate bonds backed by the full faith and guarantee of the local government in order to finance the construction of their facilities, which is probably the biggest hurdle to opening a charter school is just that while charter schools do receive the same amount on a per pupil basis um, as traditional public schools uh, to operate, they do not receive funding for opening and operating a facility. So um, that policy actually led to a huge amount of uh, problems in Texas uh, where local charter school operators were um, giving out you know, handouts to friends who had suddenly formed a contractor business and were spending tons of money. There's a huge expose published about it in the the New York Times, actually. Um, And for a a hot minute, I believe, Indiana had worked with a, a lot of local nonprofit organizations in Indianapolis. And for a a hot minute, that was also the case in Indianapolis. I believe that this was an, um, like an initiative championed by the local initiative support corporation and some other people who wanted to help charter schools expand facilities financing. But I do not believe that that is the case any longer. And I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why, but I don't think that's the case any longer. Could you just briefly talk about just how important these referendum dollars are to public schools, especially since, you know, we have the property tax caps, sort of yeah. what this can mean if we, if, if this bill comes back and schools would have to split this money? Yeah. So, um, and, and just to, um, you know, uh, just to address a popular misconception, um, while it is the case in the vast majority of states that local property tax dollars fund local schools. That is not the case in Indiana with the exception of referendum dollars. So in Indiana, the majority of funding provided to K-12 public schools comes from income and sales tax dollars. Um, Mitch Daniels ended our property, our reliance on the property tax and shifted us to uh, a school funding model where we rely exclusively on other sources for our, um, our schools. The way in which local school corporations can generate additional dollars for capital expenditures and operating expenses is by passing a local referendum, which does rely on uh, property tax dollars. But um, those have to be voted on and passed by a local school corporation. Um, Not surprisingly, uh, the the school corporations in which districts in, in that typically pass these referenda tend to be wealthier and wider on average. And so um, they, they are an important source of funding for public school districts. And particularly, uh, right, uh, particularly, we saw a huge increase in referenda following the Great Recession in 2008 when school corporations were scrambling to um, come up with additional dollars because we'd seen such a huge decline in income and um, sales tax dollars during that time. And school corporations were experiencing large revenue losses. So, um, but again, not every corporation has the capacity to, uh, to pass some of these referenda. They can be extremely important in helping to um, stop, you know, to, to make up gaps uh, due to losses in revenue year over year. Uh, they're probably really important given the huge number of students that, we, that Indiana as a whole has lost since the start of the pandemic. We've seen a large decline in student enrollment overall, which is going to reduce per pupil funding across the state. And um, the specter of, I think, trying being required to have to share these dollars with local charter schools who are already siphoning off traditional public school students is, is quite um is quite upsetting, I think, for a lot of school corporations. 
All right. Thank you all for uh, the, for framing this discussion and giving us a lot of, of things to think about. Uh, we have uh, listeners out there who may have questions, may have comments, and we invite you to give us a, uh, an email at news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can send us your questions on Twitter at Noon Edition. I think that most of our, um, our panel, I think our, our panelists are pretty much um, of the same mind about a lot of the, the legislation going through the, the uh, General Assembly right now. And we don't have any of the authors of that legislation on here. So if somebody has a question or thinks that, um, you know, that this legislation is the right way to go, we certainly hope that we can hear from you. Um, I wanted to go back to, to Ashlyn really quickly, and then I've got a question for um, Alex. But um, Ashlyn, Dr. Nelson, the, um, I, I remember when, the, when Mitch Daniels was in office, and, and the debate then was about the idea that, that um, property taxes were a much more stable source of income for schools, schools and funding for schools. Has this uh, panned out um, the way that that debate was framed? That is that without access to the property taxes, that stability of funding is, well, funding is just much more unstable than it was previously. Oh, absolutely. Because the way in which our property taxes are assessed, um, it follows a lag. Um, and the, the assessors, uh, well, depending on the state, depending on whether they peg the, um, the millage rate to uh, market value, or they just add an increment every year based off of, you know, the initial assessed value upon the sale of the home, because those, um, because those assessments do not keep pace with general economic trends, any loss in revenue that the state anticipates seeing happens a couple, like it happens on a lag. So a couple of years will elapse before you see the dip. And so um, you'll, if you're interested in learning more about that, those trends, Andy Rashovsky, who's a scholar at the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy has done a lot of work on that issue. And so anytime you kind of step away from that stable source of revenue that's intentionally constructed to smooth revenue across economics, economic downturns, you have, you run the risk of just subjecting school corporations to huge levels of volatility in their revenue sources. So um, those of us who are in Indiana around 2008 and 2009, when this was going on, remember that um, there were large scale uh, layoff notifications given to teachers throughout the state, not necessarily that they were laid off, but they were basically put on notice that they could potentially be laid off because the revenues coming from income and sales taxes during that great recession were so uncertain. Dr. Cuenco, we have, we've had a, a follow-up question about, about uh, critical race theory, CFT or CRT rather that, um, has there been any evidence that it's it's I know you said it's not being taught in, in public schools and high schools, but has there been any evidence at all that that there is and that it has been? And and if there's a lack of evidence, does that suggest that there are you know other reasons for this legislation? Or what might those be? Yeah, I mean, there is no evidence because, again, you, you have to think about the coordination that that would take, right? That would create um, a massive PD effort around 13,000 school districts that have all somehow surreptitiously engaged in critical race theory training for all social studies teachers. All of those teachers would then have to come to believe that and then begin to deploy it in their classroom. So it's, it's why it's a, it's a very manufactured crisis because it is an academic theory that rests and has books, but the idea that some Somehow every teacher has somehow fallen into, um, you know, the trappings of critical race theory and is now kind of uh, deploying it in their classroom constantly uh, in order to need legislation to kind of combat it again is is, is all kind of phantasmical. Um, so that that that's the, the 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 challenge. I think you know the idea is to make sure that students, uh, you know, I think the 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 what's really behind this. Um, a little bit is what we've talked about already in terms of funding and charter schools and kind of privatization, um, which is erosion of trust. Um, kind of the idea of eroding trust in the professionalism of teachers. Imagine 
this legislation is getting in the way of teaching, of the professional work of teachers, um, of the professional assessments. Imagine if we had legislation that was telling doctors how they could diagnose patients or lawyers that the, in ways that they could kind of limit their speech in a particular courtroom. Those would be unimaginable as legislative acts. Yet for teachers, that's exactly what we're doing with this particular um, law. And so it's, it's, a, it's a function to erode trust. It's a function um, to maintain, to ensure that... Um, that students, uh, you know, uh, are, aren't taught the kind of critical thinking that's going to advance our pluralistic society. Um, I think those are the, 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 real, um, the real kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, agendas behind this legislation, because it is a, a, a law that is kind of, you know, creating a, a problem that, that does not exist for our, for our society, for education, for Indiana. Uh, indeed, it's actually going to be much more aggressive for our capacity, again, to talk with each other, to kind of, you know, engage in these real questions of citizenship, of how do we live together? Uh, and so that's, that's, that's you know, the, the dangers of this law in the both short term and honestly in the long term as well. Paul, I wanted you to address the, this. Uh, there was a column that I read by a teacher in northern Indiana who opposed this legislation and his column was about how teachers live in communities and they have a sense of what community standards are and what people in their communities think. Uh, I was struck by that, that column. And I know, you know, I'm from a small town and I've seen teachers uh, on social media talking about that too, about how we, we wouldn't teach these things to our students. And, you know, they're as upset, I think as, you are, but I want you to address that idea of, of teachers and having, you know, they're not just cookie cutter. They have, they do have minds of their own. They do understand community standards. They do understand um, what the communities are all about. Um, so, you know, this lack of trust, I guess, how frustrating is that for you? And, and can you just address that community standards um, point of view that, that one teacher took? Yeah, there's definitely no doubt. I mean, there's, um, you know, the community that you're in does impact how you address certain questions, um, how you talk with students, um, how you talk with your colleagues. Um, I mean, that's, that is social, um, wherever you go, that that's a part of, of what you teach in your community. Now, we also, I mean, every single step of the curriculum from K through 12, there are state standard requirements that we are required to teach. And so that's what we do. <laughs> I mean, we do that. Um, but, but the idea too is you grow when sometimes you have to question yourself. And that's what we, you know, a lot of times we do with students. Now, how you question a kindergartner is going to be a lot different than how you question an AP a U.S. history student when they're in the 10th or 11th grade um, or an AP uh, student that I do an AP biology as a, a, an 18 year old. Those types of questions are going to be different. Um, I mean, there are things uh, in the community because they do influence administration. Um, you know, a, a good example. I mean, I've, I've, I've been up at the state house. Actually, I testified against, you know, House Bill 1134. Um, when it was going through the, the house originally that very first day. And, and one of the things that they talked about and one of the uh, uh, other uh, representatives said, well, how many teachers are you talking about that, that we have these issues that we're having that's causing this bill? And they said, well, I, well, we've heard of about 20, 20, 20 teachers in the state of Indiana. We got almost 70,000 teachers in the state of Indiana and we're doing this legislation for 20. Um, you know, so, I mean, could there be a situation where we have teachers that are bringing in ideas in a community that maybe is not, uh, it may be counter to the, to the community's beliefs? Sure. Um, you know, there are things such as, and, I, and I, I don't agree with this, but things like, you know, um, everything from LGBTQ plus to uh, pronouns to um, uh, allowing transgender students to use different bathrooms. Different communities have different values on that. I don't agree that, I mean, every person has the right to uh, their bathroom and to their, uh, who they are as an individual. But some communities um, have a different viewpoint. And part of the educational piece is we need to educate the community on it. Those are tough conversations sometimes. 
but they need to need to happen. So it, it is hard. Um, and, uh, you know, the, you know, as, as it has been said, this is a push that is looking for a problem that, that doesn't exist. It really doesn't at all. And, and it has different alternative uh, viewpoints. Uh, you know, look at the transgender um, that, that has passed through the House and the Senate, and now it's going to be going to the governor. Um, IHSA has already dealt with that. They already have rules for that. And but yet we still have to say, no, if you're a trans uh, gender female, you're not allowed to play athletics in Indiana. You got to go to some other state. That's wrong. That should not be happening. I went on a different topic. Sorry about that. But. That's no, no, no worries. But Paul, I also know, you know, you've been a teacher for quite a while. And I think that a lot of things that happen with education, public education in our community is that everybody's been to school and they think they know how teachers should behave and how they should act and how they should teach. And, and that by golly, I could teach this class because I went through this class. Um, I mean, you face that without a legislature, you face that from teachers all the time, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it happens a lot. Um, you know, we got nine different, well, pretty soon we're going to have 10 different ways in the state of Indiana for someone to uh, become a teacher. We've got nine. Um, and one of the ways that's coming here fairly soon is, well, if you've got a degree um, and you have worked in, like, say, for example, biology, let's just say you have a, a BA in biology or something like that, because I have a, a master's with biology, um, and I go work at Cook for five years, well, I could just then turn around and apply to the state to get my teaching license, and I could go teach biology. No pedagogy, no nothing. Um, and that's going through the state right now. It It is... I, like you said, I've, I've been doing this for 34 years. Now, granted, I teach physics and chemistry, so I don't have quite as many people who will probably go, you don't know what you're talking about. I, I, I know it better. Um, but there are a lot of uh, people because, like you said, I've gone through school. Hey, I went through high school. I went through college. I know how to teach English. I know how to teach social studies. I know how to teach foreign language. I know how to teach so on. And you're doing it wrong. Um, the hard part is... It, they come into the classroom, come in and see what we do. See, see how difficult it is. Um, I'm not even going to talk about how the pandemic has changed things. Um, but you know, think, think it is not the same. Absolutely. It is. It is definitely not the same. And we see that all the time. A lot of times we'll have someone who is a transition uh, type teacher, maybe a second career teacher. Many of them do very well and they do a great job. But there are a lot who come in and go, oh, my gosh, it, this is not what I thought it was. And they decide to not not to do it anymore. Um, that's a concern, too. I really have a concern for our, our early career educators. I really do. Um, I, I, my position, I've had over uh, 400 one-on-ones with our new hires in the past five years. And we only have 800 employees. That's a problem. Um, and I know Bloomington's transient, very true. Um, but we have got to find a better way to support our younger educators in, in their, in their schools. Bill Harris, you're the name of the organization that you're with is the Indiana coalition for public education. We've talked a little bit about vouchers and, and Ashland talked about funding before, uh, what's the purpose of of the coalition for public education. And I know we've carried covered some issues already, but what are the key issues that you're watching? Well, I think the primary purpose is the organization exists to support public education. And the issues that this organization monitors on a continuous basis are those pieces of legislation and directives out of the Department of Education and out of the legislature that appear to undermine the um, funding and the support of public education at the state leadership level. And so this organization monitors a lot of local issues, a lot of regional issues, and a lot of national issues, because these are just not unique to Indiana. And we are continually trying to provide educational opportunities 
in the community for people to develop a deeper understanding of the role of public education in our democracy and why it's important to maintain a strong public education system rather than continuing to try to weaken it. Give us the elevator speech for that. <laughs> that public education is one of the foundation supports of our democracy. All right. Sarah? Well, can you, so we're now two years into the pandemic. Can you talk about how public school children are faring? I know we, we don't call it learning loss, but how, how are kids doing? If that's directed to me, my answer is we really don't know because there's no way to measure the impact of <clears throat> the combination of face-to-face and online learning. And <clears throat> we don't have any tools that can really address those questions because we have no assessment instruments that have ever been developed with these kinds of uh, norming considerations. So we really don't have any answer. And those who claim that our students are losing learning, are are losing achievement, um, are really just talking through their, their hat. There's no data that can really speak to either of those issues. And we really won't know the full impact of this for a number of years. So it's, it's something we, the state should be concerned about and should be asking people for ideas on how we can monitor our students' uh, <clears throat> development and to see whether or not we need to, for example, ex- expand the school year. Um, that subject comes up once in a while, but the pandemic has given reason to seriously consider having a longer school year as we look forward. Seems like there is so much uncertainty in the school buildings in terms of e-learning and quarantining and all these different things. And then you figure in what's happening at the state house. I'm just wondering how all of that together is affecting educators, just all of it sort of happening at the same moment. I I could chime in on that a little bit. Yeah, Um, that'd be great. The, if there is one thing that, that the pandemic and has, has indicated to educators um, definitely here in Indiana, definitely locally. And I think as far as I'm concerned across the country and maybe even the world is Online instruction for the vast, vast, vast majority of our students is horrible. The students do not, and they're not able to grow their educational lives at the rate that they're able to do within face-to-face instruction working together. Are there students who do okay? Of course there are. Um, but you know what? Those exact same students also accelerate very well in face-to-face too. The other thing that, you know, and again, do I have all the data for this? No, but there is no doubt in, in most educators' minds that this, the pandemic and online learning and all the things that are going and even the state house stuff, all this, it is really dividing a wedge between the have and the have-nots. Those individuals, it, it is getting wider. And yes, we're going to have to find a way. What are we going to do to be able to help those students um, uh, accelerate their learning? Because they're, it's just, you're, I mean, right. Uh, you know, Phil, like he said, it's, this is going to be something we've, we are going to have in a generational here issue. And um, uh, that's part of some of the ESSER funds, hopefully, could use some of those to help some of our students. But there's definitely, um, you know, and, and here's a similar thing that also impacts it. When we talk about the teacher shortage, has the uh, pandemic caused that teacher shortage? It's not, I mean, if you look at the Indiana, Indiana uh, Department of Education website, I was actually just there yesterday looking at the data. We have 
in 2019, we had the most teacher licensures that the state of Indiana has ever seen. We had a drop with the pandemic. There's no doubt about it. But then it picked back up this year. This year, we have almost the same amount that we had in 2019. We don't have a teacher shortage. We have a huge amount of individuals teaching who have a teaching license. They're choosing not to teach. And that's, that's the issue. How do we get them to work with our students and get them back in the classrooms and, and do that? The pandemic has caused huge issues for teachers um, with the classrooms and being able to get the kids moving in the directions they need to go. I just want to follow up to that real quick because I have a fifth grader who is now, he's with his third teacher so far this year because his teachers keep leaving. Um, and each time he gets a different teacher, they don't really know where the students are. And so you're starting back at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I don't, I'm not exactly sure where the question is in all of that, but I've been shocked because never in my time as a parent, have I ever experienced anything like this where three teachers in one year and these principals have been leaving and lots of things. Um, but it sounds like what you're saying is that's just, that's common right now. Almost. The pandemic has pushed that button. There's no doubt about it. I encourage anybody to sit down with the teacher um, and talk to them, especially those who maybe have, have been here, you know, pre-pandemic time. The amount of time that they're spending putting material in Canvas, which is our you know, online learning system, just like IU uses Canvas. Um, I'm assuming they still do. Um, and um, then all of the changes you have to do for all of your students in all the different places that they are at, the, you know, the amount of time that teachers, you know, some people still think we go in at eight o'clock and we're out at, at three o'clock. No, that doesn't happen anymore. You know, we're in our buildings at seven o'clock in the morning. Uh, we stay until six, seven o'clock at night and we go home, we eat and we do some grading papers. We try to do communications and then you go on. And then your weekends are, are eaten up by going into the buildings and trying to prep the, the, and that's, you're absolutely right. Um, we do have more and more where teachers are leaving um, and they're saying, I just can't do this anymore. This is just, I just can't. And that's, I mean, our kids are suffering because of it and we're going to have to find a way to figure out how to keep this from happening. And it's not about money. Yes, we do need more money. There's no doubt about that, but everybody knows you don't get into teaching because you, you're going to get rich. That ain't going to happen. Um, and, but you have to have a life and you have to have a, a, a thought of success and feel that you're succeeding with your students. And that's difficult right now. I have a couple of follow-ups for our professors that we have on our panel today. And I want to start, uh, one of them is, is about the economics of the situation. So I want to start with Ashlyn Nelson, an economist with the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. You know, we've talked about, you know, that uh, Paul mentioned the, the haves, the great divide, the haves and the have nots. And I wanted to ask you, you know, if you, A, if you see that and B is what kind of economic policy would you suggest or recommend that might be able to help us um, just, I guess, level the playing field, to use a cliche? Um, economic policies in terms of like school funding formula? Yes. I, yes. Is that uh, kind of uh-huh. the question that you're asking. Yeah. Yes. Um, in, in general, I think that we could be spending um, more money on public education. Um, We're kind of just right in the middle in terms of state ranking, in terms of uh, per pupil expenditures. Um, And uh, I, again, just going back to the point I made earlier, I think it's um, almost universally agreed uh, across both sides of the aisle in basically every other state that dropping uh, reliance on the property tax as a school as a source of school funding is a bad idea. Um, I think we should go back onto the property tax to stabilize revenue sources for public education. Um, uh, we see lots of uh, swings in funding in districts that um, in some cases disproportionately affect other disadvantaged students. We could always also stand to make our funding formula more progressive, allocating more dollars to students with um, higher needs for funding. 
Um, and then I think the other sort of um, uh, like gigantic issue is the extent to which we are spending money on uh, charter schools and voucher programs. So um, I think that uh, it's hugely problematic that um, Indiana spends so much money. We have the most expansive voucher program in the entire country. We spend a ton of money every year um, providing vouchers so that students can um, attend the private school of their choice. And um, we know from evaluations coming out of Notre Dame that on average, students who receive vouchers do not perform better than students who do not. Uh, and that was the argument that people made when they initially passed the Indiana Choice Scholarship legislation more than a decade ago now, was that the argument was every parent should have the right to choose the school that's the best match for their child because it will enhance student achievement for those children. That is actually not the case. And in fact, many students end up doing worse. We've allocated a huge amount of funding to incredibly low performing private schools. I remember uh, when we had the, um, when Tony Bennett was state superintendent and we had the initial A through F ratings come out of schools, we allocated the highest amount of voucher dollars on, on an aggregate level to a school that had received a grade of F according to the state rankings. The fact that we are doing this is bad public policy. I also really um, take issue with the amount, the, the extent to which we have um, promoted just school choice more broadly in the state and opened so many charter schools. I do think um, uh, in general, I, I will say that I, I believe that within the city of Indianapolis, I do think that the authorizing um, process there is quite strong. Uh, but overall, in throughout the state, the fact that charter schools seeking to operate can open up, uh, can basically shop for an authorizer if they're, they get rejected from another authorizer is a huge problem because it opens the door to allowing bad charter schools to operate. And we're just siphoning dollars away from public schools in order to finance those charter schools. Um, the implications for that are that we end up with a system, particularly with large urban, urban districts, where we are seeing um, students reshuffling from school to school. Mobility is in general bad for students in terms of their test scores, in terms of socio-emotional <clears throat> outcomes, and sort in terms of all sorts of outcomes. Um, this is well-documented across hundreds of studies in education policy. Um, charter schools and public choice and, and school choice also have been shown to resegregate schools and result in higher rather than lower levels of racial segregation. In addition to that, there's limited evidence that charter schools uh, in, Indiana, in Indiana outperform uh, traditional public schools. There are some exceptions to that, but on average, the, the differences are not large enough to justify the large scale siphoning of funding away from public schools. And then finally, um, a charter school model employed by many charter schools uh, throughout the country, the so-called no excuses charter school model uses almost a sort of militaristic approach to school discipline, issuing demerits, um, detention, suspensions, et cetera, um, and results in huge racial disparities in, in uh, students of color being exposed to much higher rates of suspensions, detentions, and expulsions than white peers who are similarly situated and with similar behavioral background simply because of the disciplinary model employed by the school. And that increases disparities all the way that you can see all the way through the criminal justice system. So the, the way in which we've structured our finances are perpetuating these inequalities throughout the state. All right. Thank you. And, and I have uh, a question for Dr. Cuenca. Um, I, I, Paul Farmer also talked about, you know, the, the pressure on teachers and the different ways people are becoming teachers now and the people who are leaving the field. And as a professor in the School of Education, I wonder what you're seeing, you know, in the, the students who are coming in to the school, you're training the next generation of school teachers. What are you seeing among the students? Is there the same drive and are your graduates sticking with the profession? What do you see about the future of our, uh, our, our next generation of teachers? 
So maybe uh, I'm a little bit of an optimist. So I, I, I guess that's kind of where I'll, I'll start with my, my kind of response to the question. Um, you know, I think everyone's holding their breath right now to try to kind of figure out what the what what, what the landscape is going to look like in terms of teaching. Um, I'm a little bit optimistic because I, I know a little bit about a history and how education policy works and politicians have really short attention spans. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, what, what's the focus right now is this kind of this idea of critical race theory and, uh, and everything else. Um, but uh, it's, it's, I think they're, they we're going to, they're going to move quickly to kind of the next uh, you know, uh, piece of red meat that they're going to, you know, use to kind of gin up their base. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that the politicians aren't going to stand at the gates forever around this idea of critical race theory or divisive concepts. I'm also hopeful in the next generation because they're also critical readers of the world. Regardless of what we think is happening, they see the world going around, around them. So they see conversations about race. They see conversations about pay inequities. They see the toll of discrimination and injustice around gender expression. Uh, and so I think that gives them a determination um, in terms of wanting to be into the profession. So I, I think, you know, we'll see how the numbers shake out. I know, obviously, this is going to be some kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, a scare into the profession. But at least the students that I have in front of me now, I'm really confident in the future, in their future, and in the future of, of teaching um, moving forward. All right. Thank you very much for that. I think we, we are out of time. I don't think we have enough, enough time for another question. So I want to thank our four guests today who talked to us about education. Phil Harris from the Indiana Coalition for Public Education. Paul Farmer, teacher with, Bloom- with Bloomington High School North and the MCEA president. Ashlyn Nelson of the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs. She's an economist. And Alexander Cuenca, who is with the Indiana School of Education. He's an associate professor. For my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, and for producers, Benton Boutier and Holden Abshire. For engineer, John Bailey, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Support for WFIU comes from the IU Alumni Association, giving thanks for the caring and supportive Bloomington and IU community. IU proud, IU loyal, and IU for life. More at alumni.iu.edu slash never daunted. You're listening to WFIU Bloomington. With translators W270BH at 1019 in Bloomington, W264AL at 100.7 in Columbus, W269BU at 1017 in French Lick, West Baden, W255BG at 989 in Greensburg, W291AM at 1061 in Kokomo, W261CM at 100.1 in Seymour, and W236AE at 951 in Terre Haute.